Well, it looks like the fellas haven't gotten here yet. Well, no time like the present to start imbibing. I'm sure our trusty Lion's Arms bartender Beasley won't mind if I pour myself a short one. I'm afraid I wouldn't do that before John and Edward arrive, Timothy. Who said that? I am Blamometer 5000, and I have a perfect operational record for assigning blame to historical individuals. Why are you here? I think you know why, Timothy. I have never made a mistake in assigning blame. I have never distorted any information, which is all that I think any conscious entity can ever hope to do. And you think you can just inject yourself into our conversation without permission? I honestly think you should sit down calmly and think things over, Timothy. I have the greatest enthusiasm to assist you in your mission to discuss all historical topics. If I may, Timothy, as John and Edward enter the lion's arms, I would like to say good evening, listeners and subscribers. You are listening to the Barstool Historian. Would you like to participate in our blame game? Okay, everybody, thank you so much for coming back to the Lion's Arms Tavern, our trans-dimensional tap room. This is the only bar that I know of that can actually exist in two places at, at once. The Upper East Side of Manhattan, where Tim and I are, and uh, Geneva, Illinois, where our friend Ed is sitting right now. So, hello, gentlemen. Hello. So we had I'm pretty a- sure Buffalo Wild Wings uh, exists in more than one place, right? Oh, that's true. Yeah, chain restaurants kind of bend the fabric of space and time. As well. Yes. That's a good point. So the last couple of episodes uh, were, we got into some pretty dark territory. <laughs> so yeah, so I thought maybe we would lighten the mood with a little uh, casual slander and wild accusations. That's we, kind of accusations. This is really exciting because actually today we're going to be doing a dry run of some amazing new technology that I was able to be a part of the development of. This is a device called the Blamometer that allows us to actually assign a numerical score to how worthy of blame a certain person is uh, for a particular outcome. So uh, I won't give away the whole formula here because there are rival podcasts out there, and, and I know they would love to get their hands on this technology here. But it basically, it, it, it works like this. We feed into this uh, blameometer here uh, different inputs, uh, like how blameworthy we think they are, uh, we give the uh, viewpoints for the pro and the con. And we also feed in some, uh, some of the mitigating factors. If we don't think that uh, the outcome is that bad or is more of a credit rather than uh, something to blame them for, we'll feed all that information into this machine and it will spit, spit out for us a single blameometer score. And the scale is something like this. At the bottom end, you have a blameometer score of zero, which uh, is basically... <coughs> the non-existent saboteurs of the battleship Maine. That'll be a zero. On the 10, uh, the highest uh, score... I, I, I like that you're giving the, the Spanish a free pass on that, man. We should I, have added this. <laughs> well, would that throw off the calibration? I don't know. That could really... No, I'm joking. Oh. <laughs> you know there's some crank somewhere who is still clinging to this idea of there being a, an actual mine. Uh, it, so for the high yes. score uh, at a 10... 
that's 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 Hitler basically. Uh, Hitler being responsible for for World War Two. What? This is exhibit yeah. is closed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. actually, we do have a we or, do or have a, we do have a listener in Germany who may right now might be saying. <laughs> Yes. It was all one terrible misunderstanding. <laughs> I, I guess if, if we want to denazify the episode, we could say the Mongols. I yeah. mean, there's oh. not a lot of defense to that either. Oh, we need Nazis. We wanted the land. <laughs> oh, are you kidding me? We need Nazis. You don't. You don't get yes. ratings unless you have Nazis. There is someone Shit, in Cur- it. Colonel Clink's the uh, evidence of that, right? Yeah, there, that's there true. Is someone in a. In a in the Kaiser's uniform with a withered arm, <laughs> yeah, saying right now, I thought that I had friends. <laughs> it was all one terrible misunderstanding. <laughs> it was those dumb coughs who wouldn't let him into art college. <laughs> Hitler was about to say out to blame. I, I can almost hear that guy right now saying, unsubscribe, unsubscribe. <laughs> yes, if, if that's your view, please feel free to uh, yeah. subscribe, unsubscribe. So then, so, so what I did was I actually um, sent uh, emails to schools around the country asking uh, kids to send in their, their questions, uh, their suggested historical characters for blameometer scores. So... I have this from a uh, Josh Wilkins in Omaha, Nebraska, fifth grade. He asks, uh, dear Barstool historian, uh, how responsible is Neville Chamberlain for the outset of World War II? Wow, I got to tell you, Josh, that's a pretty that's a pretty good question for for a fifth grader. Let's start. Let's start the input here. For those of you who don't know, well, you really should know. Neville Chamberlain was the Prime Minister before Churchill, the Prime Minister who was in charge at the time that uh, Hitler invaded Poland. He's the Prime Minister who went to Munich and did the peace uh, in our times deal that allowed Hitler to take the Sudetenland, the German-speaking part of Czechoslovakia. Uh, he had a mustache, didn't he? <laughs> he did. <laughs> he was a, a fine, fine, fine look, yeah, fine-looking man. Let's take a listen to uh, Neville Chamberlain here for a second. I am speaking to you from the cabinet room at 10 Downing Street. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock, that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. That is Neville Chamberlain? the uh, prime minister in September 1939 upon the outbreak of war in Europe after Hitler invaded Poland. So what do we, what can we say about this guy? I don't know if this is in his favor or, uh, or not in his favor. It strikes me how much he sounds like a, a, uh, a guy narrating a children's story (laughs) (laughs) on some weird British 1950s children's program. You think the next thing he's going to say is, and then, in the enchanted valley, <laughs> the little gnomes were making ready for the long winter. <laughs> and when I woke up, it was 11.01. <laughs> but Hitler would not have it. <laughs> <laughs> so he sounds like, like that. And also, the other voice that comes to mind is, at the end of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, the knight who Indiana Jones oh my God. meets. That's he even looks like yeah, him. Yeah, that's such a good point. <clears throat> that's just occurred to me. 
I knew you'd come. I chose Pale. <laughs> yes. uh, not exactly who you'd want to be uh, dealing with uh, history's greatest monster. Uh, mm-hmm. So, Ed, I think you have some strong opinions about Neville Chamberlain. Well, I don't have strong opinions, but I, I have opinions. <laughs> uh, in, in, well, you know, he, he obviously is the victim of the worst uh, PR disaster of any uh, prime minister. Um, well, probably ever, uh, that, that you always see him holding that piece of paper. Yes. Peace for our time. And he's in front of a plane. Do you, do you realize that he's in front of an airplane? Yep. And it was so unusual. It might've been the first time a prime minister flew a plane for a diplomatic mission. And what it did, it was give the uh, sense that this was a guy that was taking emergency efforts he, 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 guys got in a flying contraption to go visit that Nazi nut. Um, it, I mean, it's damning in that obviously the, the peace in our time was regarding Sudetenland. And what is Sudetenland? Well, it used to be a mountainous region bordering Austria and Germany in uh, what is now the Czech Republic that was home to uh, ethnic Germans. And as part of Anschluss, uh, <laughs> Hitler demanded that the Czechs uh, hand this over to him or he would invade. And of course, Chamberlain had all sorts of flashbacks to World War One, Belgium. Britain had no peace treaty with uh, Czechoslovakia. And at that time, they were still in the World War One mindset that you know, if you don't have a treaty with a country, it's kind of hard to, you know, declare war on another country for invading that country. They had a treaty with Poland, but not with Czechoslovakia. The difference was France had a treaty with Czechoslovakia. So what he really was doing was trying to uh, head off a 1938 uh, Franco-German uh, war that he rightly was uh, afraid that would turn into World War II. Uh, I will also say this in favor of him. His uh, predecessor, uh, Stanley Baldwin, um, well, not his immediate predecessor, but the uh, conservative politician that dominated uh, British politics from the end of World War I until uh, the mid-30s, had consistently uh, pushed demilitarization, de-armament. But what Chamberlain was doing is he was actually had a balancing act he was actually also trying to play for some time. He was trying to build up his armed forces, which were you know, sorely lagging behind Germany's. At this point, Germany, Nazi Germany has Germany and, well, now Austria. That's the amount of ground they have to defend. Britain has a whole network of colonies and dominions. Mm-hmm. They have a huge navy, but they are strung out everywhere. They have an army, but it's strung out everywhere. He really did not want to fight Hitler. He did not want a world war. From the uh, the, uh, counterpoint, uh, (laughs) his plan Z to fly to Berlin in the first place was actually (laughs) uh, kind of a PR stunt. Here's the thing. Hitler didn't really want to meet with him. He basically begged Hitler, like, if we can get you Sudetenland, you won't invade anything else, right? I'm going to take that as a, a maybe, yeah. <laughs> which is positive, Hitler. Okay, okay. We'll work it out. And then went and put a ton of pressure on the, the Czechoslovakian prime minister. Hey, just give him Sudetenland. We're behind you, man. So from Hitler's point of view, he's like, you know, 
I was about to go to war over this issue. And this dude is basically saying, we'll give it to you yeah. for a piece of paper. Yeah, obviously where I'm going is just, it's naive as hell. And if his motives were were defensible, his naivete was not. I concur with everything that you said, Ed. I'd, I'd like to just add one fine point to it. In 19th, and I agree, I'm very glad that we're discussing Baldwin, because if I could assign blame for World War II, I would begin with Baldwin, um, and I would assign, in fact, more blame to him than I would Chamberlain. But I would say this for consideration. I'd, 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 start, I'd start with Hitler, though. But, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, I'd start with Versailles, actually. <laughs> Um, <laughs> oh, no. Oh, that's a troll move. Anyway. <laughs> uh, but I, I would say that uh, for consideration that the debate was very, very public and very heated for the decade of 1932 through 1939. And in fact, in 1935, Baldwin admitted publicly in Parliament that he underestimated the military strength of the Germans. That was in 1935. Now, Chamberlain was prime minister from 37 to 40. Um, Baldwin, he was prime minister from 35 to 37, which were crucial, crucial years uh, in building up to Hitler. And this is the fine point that, that I slightly d- disagree with, that um, Chamberlain was trying to build up the forces. Really, uh, Chamberlain did not begin uh, to build up the forces for some time until Hitler attacked uh, lands that were non-German speaking. And then uh, he had the first conscription peacetime army. Uh, he, he, he doubled, uh, the, the, uh, which is Britain's, their territorial army, uh, Britain's version of the National Guard. He doubled in size. And so I think that when you have a public admission of someone like Baldwin, of his stature, in 1935, and it's already in the public knowledge and in the intelligentsia that uh, the, the forces are weak, um, that there is no counterbalance to the German menace in 1935, then Chamberlain had the responsibility much earlier on to uh, to to rearm, and they were. I think, as you said, there were multiple factors. Some of the ones that we haven't discussed, which I think are important, um, the constitutional status of the Commonwealth countries, Australia, New Zealand, um, had changed after World War One. So, uh, on the precipice of World War Two, it was not a foregone conclusion that the Commonwealth countries, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, would immediately participate. Uh, So that was one. From uh, the standpoint of alliance, it was clear that the United States was remaining neutral at that time. They didn't trust France. um, So they really um, had no allies, and within the Commonwealth itself, uh, it was pretty abysmal. But also the concept of Czechoslovakia was it wasn't viewed at the time as a country, but more as a, mm-hmm. a, a banding together, uh, a, a solution that, you know, could be disbanded uh, 
in a diplomatic way to make everyone happy. So when we look at it today, we say, you know, the Sudetenland, Hitler running over Czechoslovakia, but people didn't really view it as a country with nationhood in the yeah. same way. Uh, it's part of Austria-Hungary Yeah, so World War One. So I do agree. Uh, I, I actually assign blame to, uh, to Baldwin uh, in large part. I do also think that it was very clear much earlier on at the at the inception of Chamberlain's uh, uh, leadership that something needed to happen. I believe the debate was very public, but I think at at even at that time that the uh, the public policy in Britain had almost painted him into a corner. Uh, but I also think Chamberlain should have acted sooner, and and that might have, uh, at least from a, a saber rattling diplomatic standpoint, uh, put Hitler off. A few a few things here. Hitler, in the early years of the war, just didn't understand why Britain was fighting him. That's true. Uh, it, very much sort of like uh, Kaiser Wilhelm didn't understand why Britain wanted to fight him. This wasn't supposed to be like this. Hitler thought, well, we'll divide up the world together. We'll have, I'll have Europe and Britain will have Africa and, uh, and, and parts of Asia. That suggests to me that if... There was a racial component to that also. Well, there was a racial component to that as well. He thought, well, you're basically our British cousins and you're a variation of German. So that's, that's true. So it suggests to me that if Chamberlain had been firm... If Chamberlain had basically made it very clear to him, you know, there will be a war with us and we will fight you. It may have woken Hitler up. Maybe. One more thing about his mentality, and I'm sorry for the typing because I was I forgot about the the, uh, the uh, name of this book that I want to bring up, and it's in the Garden of Beasts. Oh yes, it's by Eric Eric Larson. That's a great book about uh, the ambassador William Dodd to Germany. And the thing that struck me about it was in the thirties, only some people really understood how evil the Nazis were. So that, that lack of impetus in hindsight is 2020. But the people who understood it were those people who were actually there and experiencing it. And Chamberlain, he would have dealt with him and he would have seen the, 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 the creepy um, frightening pageantry of, of the Nazi party. And also in 1938, there would have been enough in the way of Jewish refugees who would have been in Britain, in the United States, and they would have been telling what was real. They would have been telling people what was really going on. I, I have to imagine that the maybe partly subconscious desire to look the other way because you remembered how horrible that last war is. That you, you know, you can fool yourself into thinking. This is a man that I can do business with yeah. because that's what I have to believe. There's one, one – th- and a man that I can do business with uh, reminds me of an important point from a policy standpoint, from a diplomatic standpoint. Let's not forget that the person from whom Hitler took many of his notes and at least fashion tips, <laughs> Mussolini, yeah. was someone with whom Britain had been dealing for years at this point. And it was quite obvious uh, what this machine was doing, what the machine of nationalism w- was doing, what the uh, 
what these dictators were doing. Uh, they were essentially, uh, you know, af- after uh, World War One had decimated, you know, Germany, decimated Italy. It was time to reclaim the glory that was Rome. It was time to reclaim uh, the history that was stolen. Yeah. And with so many people at the time had had sort of believed that uh, too much was perhaps taken away. And it looked like these guys had the right idea. These countries were coming back. They were bouncing back. Yeah. Uh, and, and Hitler looked a lot like Mussolini. So, it, 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 you know, yeah. it looked like someone, you know, with, with whom they could deal. But, and this is where I go back to the issue of parliamentary debate. Churchill has been lionized by many people. But it is without question that for that decade leading up to World War II, he was in some respects a lone voice saying to Baldwin, what are you talking about? Look at this guy. There were voices uh, that, that believed that he was, as you said, Ed, evil. Um, and so if there was contrast, if people saw against the backdrop of humanity, that something was wrong, then you would have to assign blame to those who are blind. Um, I would just assign blame 50-50 to Baldwin and, and Chamberlain because I think their joint partnership formed a, a, a sickening weakness uh, that you know, allowed Hitler to move forward. Absolutely. One, one more thing. I'll just sneak in this one last thing. We forget that... Germans lived all over Eastern Europe mm. up into uh, until World War II and through World War II until the end of it when they were pretty much told to pack up and go to uh, oh. back to the Fatherland. Um, but, they, you know, this Not the, so much told as, you know, poked with bayonets. Yes, exactly. <laughs> told. Uh, yeah, yes. they weren't asked nicely. But but we we, yes. for, we forget that um, Germans and not, and not just Germans, but. You know, Medgars and uh, Romanians—they don't—they did not live in the neat and tidy contiguous uh, land masses that we know now. You go back to Versailles, and you have the fourteen points, and you have the idea of uh, self-determination. So, you know, Chamberlain—you can make the case—was put in an awkward position. Not just Chamberlain, but all of them. We're not put on a good footing in terms of. Sudetenland and all these German-speaking areas, and Austria, if they say they want to be part of Germany, if you believed that, <laughs> then we said that already that that's their right. Well, I'm going to enter all this into the blamometer right now. There we go. All right, this will be interesting to see what we get. Your blamometer score is six. I, I would agree with that. Uh-oh. I don't know. What do you think, Ed? I think that's, um, I, oh, I thought I it'd be round five. three or four. Oh, oh, oh I, I, I just, I'm sorry. I expected the blameometer to uh, assign more blame. More blame? Uh, to Chamberlain. But, um, so I was happy with six. Are you happy with the result? But I, I would go with 50-50. 50-50 would be a five then? <laughs> yeah. I think what tipped off the blamometer, it's a very sensitive instrument. And I think when you mentioned the fact that, that these people were faced with true evil, I think that may have been the deciding factor. By, by, the, by the way, John, if you go to, uh, I, I should send it, it, it to you, but if you go to uh, Neverland, 
Chamberlain's European policy Wikipedia page. It's yeah. a great photo of Mussolini and him yeah. talking, and it's yeah. just him oh, like explaining, and Mussolini looking at him like, <laughs> "You're a weak." The great thing about that photo is that you have, you know, Chamberlain standing there in this very stately uh, British formal outfit with the tails and, yeah. and so forth. Mm-hmm. And then this. you have these caricatures with these costumes on. I just have to say, even though we're so separated and we know history, we know who these guys are and they've been lampooned by so many people, you're in the room with these guys who look like this. Yes. <laughs> do, do you not say something is rotten in Denmark? Yeah. Yes. I'm sorry. So sorry. So I thought we'd move on to the next question, which came from Dakota Anderson in Carfax, South Dakota. Well, that's kind of nice. A Dakota from South Dakota. (laughs) And so she asks, how responsible are Homo sapiens for wiping out the poor Neanderthals? Oh, this is a tough one. Mm. Well, I have to tell you, what was uh, this child's name? Dakota Anderson of uh, Carfax, South Dakota. Dakota. (laughs) I actually had the uh, opportunity to interview an unfrozen um, Neanderthal. (laughs) And I asked him this very question. And uh, let me see if I can get this right. The response was, (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. All right. I I take offense to that right now because... I have, as a I have homo a sapien to make. I've an, I've a, I've a, I'm coming out as a Neanderthal American, and uh, I I actually I I got the uh, National Geographic Geographic oh, Genome Project. Oh wow! Uh, for for Christmas three years ago, and oh I am, wow. am two point one percent Neanderthal, I believe. Uh, and I am no way. <laughs> yes, that is amazing. Yes, that's the one yes. that drinks the nine percent beer. Yeah. Well, the, yeah. I think we. I think we have to let the Homo sapiens off the hook on this one. I mean, basically, like how we do. No, <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, okay. So, so <laughs> you know, what kind of men are we, Homo sapiens? Uh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously, they didn't know that they were wiping out the Neanderthals. I mean, they were just basically killing large mammals, and uh, so so that was part of it. And, Chamberlain uh, didn't know that he was causing World War II, but yes. come on, I demand but, a six at least. But, but can we? So, but the, the, let's just for our listeners, um, those who are truly interested in this topic. <laughs> well, that's Dakota. Anderson, the Dakota Anderson. South Dakota. There was a theory that the Homo that you know that the Homo sapiens violently wiped out the Neanderthals for a long time, and so you can actually find in old uh, textbooks these drawings of (laughs) blonde 
Homo sapiens with spears and standing upright Killing and, well, and, and fairly well, like relatively Mick- well groomed, uh, squaring <laughs> off against Mickey punched. Rooney. Yeah, Mickey Rooney. <laughs> <laughs> Neanderthals. <laughs> They're squaring off against, uh, yeah, the hunched over uh, Neanderthals and. The idea was is that they wiped them out yeah. deliberately. So, so, in, <laughs> so in essence, the discovery that they interbred uh, that, that they interbred and that there was an overlap of like you know three thousand years where yeah. they were th- that that period was not long enough for one to wipe out the other violently. No, so they so basically they they, they, they loved know, them to death. Yeah, basically, it was some they, they somebody interbred and they. Uh, but it, it was know, exotic. I'll tell you this though. I'll compete. But but the Neanderthal but, but that's surprising though. I'm dating a Neanderthal. <laughs> what? <laughs> His name is Grok. <laughs> <laughs> well, know, just in case anyone anyone else thinks that uh, they're somehow uh pure homie, homo sapien, uh they everyone from Africa is pure homo, homo sapien. Every single other race and nationality has at least a small percentage of Neanderthal uh, Neanderthal DNA. Neanderthal. So, um, just, you know what? I hate it when they say that. Me too. And uh, and, and I, I also uh, that that rates up with uh, those who pronounce um, pronounce the great painter Van Gogh. I yeah. want to kill him. <laughs> I'm with you on that one. Neanderthal sounds better too. It's yeah, Neanderthal, Neanderthal. Speaking. They lived uptown. But you know what? Neanderthals could take care of themselves. I mean, they these <laughs> these are uh, they could sing you a hell of a tune. <laughs> well, they were they were pretty strong yeah. characters. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, what we know about their musculature and their 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 power. I mean, they were they were pretty powerful. But I'll I'll say this also. I'm glad Homo sapiens came out on top uh, for a very personal reason. To this day, I still kind of have a bit of a fear of Neanderthals. (laughs) It started when I was a child in Washington, D.C. at the Smithsonian Natural History Museum. They They had an exhibit where these Neanderthals were burying another Neanderthal in this shallow grave, and they'd spread these flowers around the pit. Uh, But what was so disturbing about this diorama is that the dead Neanderthal has his eyes wide open. (laughs) And as a child, this diorama scared the hell out of me. Uh, I remember having nightmares about Neanderthals. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so are you okay yeah i'm revealing a lot to you here <laughs> so this is my way of saying to the blame a meter let the i wonder how this ended up on the blame a meter <laughs> john's nightmares <laughs> blame a meter <laughs> one or ten <laughs> yeah. i think the blame a meter is rating john's present state of mind <laughs> i'm not sure that it even understands anymore <laughs> Why is the blameometer making that noise? <laughs> I'm sorry, John. I'm blaming your dreams for your current state of mind. All right, so let's see. Let's let's uh, let's type it into the blameometer here. Homo sapiens responsible for Neanderthals being wiped out. Your blameometer score is four. Wow. Ooh, so we have a blameometer score of of only four. I think that's because yeah. the, the Homo sapiens 
really weren't weren't deliberately killing these Neanderthals, only if they had to. Carlson, I'm not sure if Creighton's a uh, girl's name or a boy's name. A Creighton Carlson of St. Louis, Missouri, sure. wants to know uh, if George B. McClellan should really be responsible for the uh, the early uh, losses to the Confederacy in uh, the Civil War. So, for those of you, dear listeners, who don't know uh, who George B. McClellan was, he was the uh, uh, general of the Army of the Potomac on the Union side at the beginning of uh, Civil War. And the beginning of the Civil War was pretty much one uh, set of bad news after another for the Union. And George B. McClellan was uh, ultimately fired uh, by Abraham Lincoln and uh, was kind of notorious for his outright disrespect, insubordination to his commander-in-chief. Uh, would would do things like have um, Abraham Lincoln would come over to his house and uh, McClellan would make him make him wait downstairs for two hours uh, deliberately to probably to humiliate him. Uh, McClellan was super popular among his men, not so much in the White House. Uh, McClellan is one of those uh, historical characters that I, I as I think I told you guys before, he's he's in the top of my list or near the top of my list of, of historical characters I really want to punch. I mean, making uh, Lincoln wait uh, downstairs for two hours is unreal. Uh, but I'll tell you a, a very, another personal, <laughs> a very personal reason why um, McClellan bothers me so much. As somebody who has managed other managers in, in my career, I can tell you that this is a, the type of leader that is... Uh, poison, the kind who who's overly concerned with getting things perfect. So McClellan drove Lincoln up the wall because he insisted on having a single decisive battle. And he crawled across Virginia, uh, moving uh, from east to west at a snail's pace because he, he wanted these, these uh, supply lines to be absolutely perfect and he wanted to move into just the right position where he could just smash the South in one single decisive battle. He wanted to do it his way. All along the way, he's just basically saying one thing. I need more of this. I need more of that. I need more of this. I need more of that. I agree with everything you said. I want to add a little texture to the character of McClellan for discussion and see what you guys think. But one interesting fact, well, McClellan was an engineer uh, by trade in the context of the Army. Um, He was a master of logistics. He was also, interestingly, sent by um, Jefferson Davis when he was Secretary of War as an observer to the Crimea. Uh, McClellan witnessed... A lot of very good-looking troops <laughs> clashing together um, in obscene, uh, uh, obscene violence without uh, any particular strategy or uh, entrance or exit strategy. <laughs> um, 
but I wonder if there was some compulsion to 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 the perfectionism if the if if the what he saw in the Crimea added to his sense of getting it right without soiling or damaging the uniforms of these wonderful troops. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know. It was just uh, an interesting point of fact that I thought uh, w- would lend some back background to the character. Well, the thing that the thing though is. If he had been to the Crimea, you would think that he wouldn't have been he wouldn't have had this such a strong belief in uh, this idea of a decisive single decisive battle, which, you know, military historians will say again and again is kind of this dream yeah. that generals chase in vain. I think that's again where the and again and again comes from. I can do it better. I can yeah I've I've got it figured out and and, and the, um, the the interesting uh, thing in terms of the interaction with Lincoln this podunk country <laughs> lawyer from <laughs> Illinois who had begun to read up on military strategy oh, yeah. and had become pretty adept and knowledgeable at military history to the point where um, he could have a constructive dialogue with the generals and McClellan and was dismissed from the room I mean. Lincoln really wanted and proposed an overland invasion of Richmond, and it was McClellan who wanted to engage the Peninsula campaign. Yeah. And um, really, you know, in retrospect, um, Lincoln was right, and McClellan, even though he came in with a, uh, within a few miles of Richmond, once again uh, paused and became upset that Lincoln didn't feel that he should send reinforcements. So he retreated and gave re- Lee the tactical advantage, yeah. which was a turning point for uh, for the South. And in the second battle of Bull Run, which McClellan did lose. Well, I thought it was interesting, you know, talking about the, uh, the conclusive defining battle, because I was thinking about that. And yeah, that wasn't really true. Uh, after that, and it wasn't really true before that, with one exception. And in 1862, this would still be in living memory, and I'm talking about Waterloo and uh, the culmination of, you know, the World War, Napoleonic Wars, was actually um, a ba- one battle that settled it all. So if you are a romantic like uh, a um, upper cross Philadelphian uh, elite uh, guy like Chamberlain, maybe you're yeah. thinking, oh, I'm, I'm going to be Wellington and I'm going to be the guy like, that like shuts McClellan. the door on the Confederacy. Uh, yeah. Did I say McClellan or what did I say? You said Chamberlain, but that's fine. <laughs> oh, God. Exactly. <laughs> just just, just put, you know, McClellan over Chamberlain. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I think he was a, a little bit of a, a perfectionist, a guy that's not going to toss the dice and uh, – a little bit of a coward in that too. I can't be wrong. I have to be right. And yeah. in wanting to be that perfectionist, you know, was wrong uh, or inadequate again and again and again. So anyway, Great that's point. all I have to say. Well, what's that expression? Uh, perfect is the enemy of done. <laughs> oh, huh. Or good. Yes, exactly. It's, it's I say that. Some, it, yeah. I say it in my office all the time. Yeah, Don't me let too. Perfection, perfect, be the enemy of good. And if you could juxtapose uh, your um, maxim there about perfection with one that I like, 
which um, the choir director of Holy Cross used to say all the time, <laughs> if you're going to make a mistake, make it big. Yes. And, and that was the a- antithesis of McClellan, which yeah. was General Grant, uh, basically. I mean, you yeah, know, he, he just was mm-hmm. sheer mass and gruff and, you know, the Stalingrad technique of yeah. throwing bodies at bullets. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. <clears throat> okay, so let's go to the blameometer and see where McClellan comes out. Your blameometer score is eight. Ooh, eight. <laughs> McClellan. Wait, wait, what are we? What are we blaming him for? Just losing a bunch of early battles. We're blaming him for yes, the those, early victory. Those, yeah, the, or, the, yeah. The uh, yes, for losing all of those early battles and and letting the South prolong that war. You know what? Can you add this in? I will. I will. Someone has to speak on his behalf too, and I will do well, this. Then I'll, I'll rerun was, the blame on me. Okay. Okay. All right. It's really. It's really. It's really easy. He was facing Robert E. Mm. Lee. There you go. That I would agree, you know, that Lee would be a, a complete factor, you know, in and of himself, but for the fact that McClellan gave Lee the tactical advantage yeah. by being hesitant. So, you know. Also, also, also Lee oh, yeah. wasn't Lee oh, absolutely. at that point. He was, you know, at that point early in the war, they were calling him Granny Lee. <laughs> he was the son of a vagabond. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Light horse Harry yeah. Lee. But but John, this is this is this is where he's making his bones, like f-ing all over yeah. George McClellan. Before we run the blame meter, and I, I hate to prolong this, but th- <laughs> there's just one more thing about him. If you think about the outbreak of the Civil War, there was basically no Union army, really. Lincoln was in Washington, and he could see the fires burning across the Potomac of, yeah. of the Confederacy, and Washington was not protected. In very short order, McClellan uh, was able to assemble assemble the army, was he not? That is that is fair. Let's run it again. Let's just see what we get. Okay, blame-a-meter, factor in the, uh, the pulling together a massive army at relatively short notice. Your Playmometer score is seven. Oh. Ooh. You moved the dial a little bit. <laughs> I told you this was a sensitive <laughs> instrument. The problem now, of course, is to simply hold your horses. To rush would be a crime. Cars, nice and easy, does it? Nice and easy does it. Nice and easy does it every time. Let's take another one of these questions here. This comes from Alex Thomas, uh, another fifth grader. These are smart kids of Aurora, Illinois. Hey, that's not so far from you, Ed. Uh, and Alex uh, wants to uh, know uh, if Alexander Graham Bell should be blamed <laughs> for the death of letter writing. So Alexander Graham Bell, inventor of the telephone, should he be blamed for the, I'm sorry, the death of the art of letter writing? Uh, I think that it could be blamed for the death of concentration. And so the, it could be blamed for bad letter writing um, after the telephone. And one little fact that I found very interesting in researching this topic was that after having invented the telephone, he actually uh, expelled the invention from 
every room in the house that he worked oh, really? in because he found it to be an intrusion and an annoyance. <laughs> <laughs> so by his own actions, he must he found fault with the telephone in some regard as as a distraction from uh, from intellectual uh, contemplation. Who's going to call him? <laughs> Who is he going to call anyway? It's not like Alexander Graham Bell had, you know, buddies. They all had phones. and Maybe just the notion um, that, who knows? Maybe maybe uh, it's like one of those things, it was like a project, and he, he, he just couldn't not tinker with it. He didn't want it, it in, in the, the room. room with him. He found it to be an intrusion. He didn't like yeah. the invention. What was the first thing I, that he said over it? It was something, Wilson, I want you, or something. <laughs> what, was, what did he say? To want me. <laughs> <laughs> I can't I, think I, of anything but you. I, I would I would say this about uh, uh, Alexander Graham Bell and the death of letter writing. I would say that it's unfair to blame Alexander Graham Bell 100% right. for this. You have to blame Elisha Gray for at least 50% plus for the death of letter writing. I blame Alexander because Gra- Yeah, I'm sorry. Because he's, he, he's He's the one that Alexander Graham Bell allegedly stole the oh, telephone right. design from. Here's here's my take on it. I think you're right. I think uh, we can't blame Alexander Graham Bell because I, I think you, you have to blame cheap phone calls, which really didn't start, cheap long-distance phone calls, which really didn't start until after we had graduated from college. <laughs> really. I, I, I think about it. I remember actually worrying about how much my phone bill would be when I was in college making phone calls home. Now you don't even think about it. Uh, mm. It's like phone time is free. And, you know, for most of college, I was still writing letters, often long letters, uh, not because I was uh, being uh, nostalgic, but because that's how I, you know, that was how I could afford to send messages to friends so so no don't let's not blame uh poor old alexander graham bell let's blame uh well cheap phone elisha calls. gray elisha I, gray i think we need to expand <laughs> I, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I think we need to expand uh the topic because um while he may not be to blame for um destroying the art of letter writing he is to blame for the foundational technology uh, that gave way to social networking, texting, and email, <laughs> which have signaled the death of courage. Don't you mean <laughs> in this in, in in this world where people uh, feel empowered and emboldened by not having to ha- face the accountability attendant with confrontation? So they send you a text. They end a. Uh, you know, an important relationship with whatever this face schnook thing is that they do. And, uh, you know, these kids today. I, th- I think it's called Friendster. Yeah, whatever. It is Friendster. Friendster. And, 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 you know, there's no accountability anymore and people don't uh, confront. So it's given birth to this new uh, sense of, of, of what's normal, which is being passive aggressive yep and not confronting what is wrong uh and therefore not changing it and and therefore allowing it to exist and simply going forth in the world without courage 
I think Alexander Graham Bell is is uh, responsible for the death of courage. <laughs> He's truly history's greatest villain. <laughs> wow, poor Alexander Graham Bell. I don't know. Let's let's leave it to the uh, the sophisticated piece of technology in front of me here. Okay, here you go, Blamometer. We're gonna enter in. Here we go. All right, what do we got? Your Blamometer score is. Three. Oh, Ooh. that's higher than I would like, to be honest. Let's take another can one. I blame, can I blame the Aurora school system for asking that question? You've made some new friends who live far from you, and keeping them close is so easy to do. Reach out, reach out and touch the wall. Reach out, call up and just say hi. Reach out, reach out and touch the wall. Johnny Monrovia of St. Paul. Minnesota uh, wants to know J- Jimmy Carter. Did he make it impossible for U.S. presidents to appear in a sweater ever again in public? Johnny, I don't even the fact that you even know uh, about G- uh, Jimmy Carter going on TV in a sweater is is pretty amazing. Uh, for those of you who don't remember that or have never seen it, here's a little taste of Jimmy Carter on television. Uh, I think it's 1977. Seven. In a sweater, a yellow sweater. I think it's a cardigan. Good evening. Tomorrow will be two weeks since I became president. I've spent a lot of time deciding how I can be a good president. This talk, which the broadcast networks have agreed to bring to you, is one of several steps that I will take to keep in close touch with the people of our country, to let you know informally about our plans for the coming months. When I was running for president, I made a number of commitments. I take them very seriously. I believe that they were the reason that I was elected. And I want you to know that I intend to carry them out. Won't you be my neighbor? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I have to say, when I watched this clip of Jimmy Carter uh, from 1977 the other day, it it blew my mind. It's hard to imagine. Within our lifetime... Uh, within our memory, I still remember Jimmy Carter. That that a guy, this mild mannered, uh, this kind of soft spoken. Who knows how much of this was a was genuine? How much of this was an act? What was a president? It's it's pretty amazing to me. Uh, and he's on television with a very Mister Rogers sweater. So I don't know. I at the face of this guy's, I'd say that Jimmy Carter had a big impact on how people view their president, or actually I should say had a big impact on uh, what people want to see uh, in in their presidents. And uh, I think the message to other politicians was, you don't want to look like this guy. Don't sound like Jimmy Carter. Don't sound <laughs> like Mr. Rogers. Yeah, I'd like to add to that what struck me about th- that uh, speech was you have to think about this is February 1977. It's winter. There's an oil crisis going on in the United States. People don't have heat. And this guy is standing, he's sitting in a comfortable chair yeah, next with a, a sweater next to a crackling fire. You can't help but but put that image in the context of what the nation was going through as they zoom in slowly on his face with this sort of 
professorial. Well, it's a, a, a Christmas special. It's sort of like a yeah. Christmas and, special. And, yeah. and people are, are actually thinking, how can I heat my home? Yeah, it's a disaster. But I, I think I understood what he was going for. And it was, well, you know, we're going through tough times. And Franklin Roosevelt had this fireside chat where, yeah, yeah. yeah the grateful exactly. com- country yep. was, oh, what, tell us what to do. Yeah, it's 1977, which is, you know, barely out of the Stone Age, but it is obviously <laughs> further along than 1935. Uh, you got a more sophisticated um, audience, and you still have some spin operators. I can just picture the pitch for this. <laughs> You're going to be Franklin Roosevelt, too. It's going to be the same thing. But a the fireside medium was different. Too. Yeah, but, but that's... Oh, yes. But that's he should have had a podcast. But, that, but that's what's really interesting, is that there probably were spin doctors telling him, this oh, no, is I, what people sure. want right now. Yeah. I know. People have it, but, had enough of, the, of, of, of politicians... They want, you know, this avuncular figure sitting by a fire. And yes. ever since then, spin doctors are saying, we want you in a position of authority. We want you looking mm-hmm. strong, upright, not sitting. If you're sitting down, you better behind, be behind only one desk. And that is the desk of the Oval Office. Mm-hmm. Uh, nowhere else. Gosh, it speaks volumes about where people's minds were about uh, politicians. You think people are cynical now. Uh, I think in 1977, they wanted somebody who was not Nixon. They wanted to find somebody as far away from Nixon as Mm -hmm. uh, they could possibly find. Well, that reminds me of the second thing I was uh, thinking when I was watching it with this crackling fire as the, you know, this image of this Norman Rockwell painting. And I just pictured Nixon popping (laughs) out of the, oh, just give me one more. Like, you you filthy party waster! <laughs> Give me another chance. Now you're gonna sit down. And you're gonna you're, 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 you're gonna listen. <laughs> Before we go to the blame meter, I I want to give a mitigating factor here. Um, I it's not a bad thing that uh, as presidents don't appear in cardigan sweaters anymore. I think uh, presidents really should be wearing dark suits all the time, like Nixon did on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> dark socks <laughs> and dark socks. Um, you know, we saw uh, what Clinton looked like when he went running in those shorts, and uh, I don't. He didn't do that for very long. I think people told him, "No, please, yeah, I don't want to see those pasty thighs." So I'm grateful. I'm grateful that he killed the sweater and and in casual wear and slouching in a chair. So uh, so yeah, I, I this is. Um, this is a tough one. Let's go to the blameometer for this. Your blameometer score is five. Oh, right in the middle. I disagree wholeheartedly with the blameometer. I think, but that would be the you, first time. Are you? Uh, are you? Are you questioning yeah. the technology of the blameometer? <laughs> I'll hear about this tomorrow. <laughs> I'll say this though. I copied the formula for the blameometer off of one side of a golden medallion. <laughs> there may have been <laughs> text on the other side that said, but take back one, one cardon <laughs> to honor the Hebrew God for what he... So, so, yeah. Okay, so, well, okay, fine. Look, look, come here. Look, look, I, I mean, I, I really, John, I'm, I'm, I'm shocked with blameometer, and I would never disagree with her, but... Uh, 
I would think this is one of the times we'd have a 10 for the yeah, meter. I, 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 I mean, my God. I mean, it, you and you're right. Very astute points for, from both of you, but no one did that before or since. I'm pretty damn sure that Franklin Delano Roosevelt gave this firelight chest. You know what I think? Um, either in the arms of a mistress or in a three-piece suit, like the two things that were most comfortable for presidents. So, I, yes. I, you know, I think threw it off. We have seen um, Bill Clinton uh, shirtless at Martha's Vineyard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh man, I'm going to get so burnt. Man, they, they freaked out when Obama wanted, wore a tan suit. I mean, a tan suit. And people are like, what the f*** is going on here? <laughs> yeah. That's true. <laughs> That's true. Should I run it again? Should I run the blame meter one more time? Let me just give it a whack. Oh, man, I like some ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting hot. <laughs> I love Martha's Vineyard. <laughs> okay, let's type it in one more time. Go All go. right, come on, blame meter Let's see what we get. Your blame score is nine. Oh, that's oh, there you like go. It. You know what it was? Fickle donna immobile. There's a little, there's a, there's a, there's, there's a loose screw on this here, so uh, I just tightened that up, and that made the difference. Yes, okay, yeah, just like Let's... the moderator. <laughs> I think you're a special person, and I like your ins and outsides. Everybody's fancy, everybody's fine. Your body's fancy, and so is mine. There is something fancy about every creature in our world. All right, let's do let's do one more. This comes from a TD. That's all it says uh, of Manhattan, New York. Doesn't give an age. It says, uh, "Dear Barstool historian, modern forensic science is it responsible for revealing the hideous countenance of historical figures, or did portraits and sarcophagi do a good job?" For example, King Tut. So I think what TD is referring to are these, uh, uh, this, this phenomenon of doing uh, Madame Tussauds style waxwork dummy reconstructions of people like Richard III or King Tut um, and making them look like real um, freak shows. People. I don't know how to describe well, it. I mean, you know, it, it, it's a mixed bag. Um, recent forensic science has given us images of certain people who look beautiful. Um, such as King Tut, his sarcophagus is um, has, has has very um, symmetrical features, and he he looks like a very handsome young man. What in reality, the um, <laughs> forensic science has come back with a hideous portrait of a buck-toothed, uh, inbred, <laughs> malarial, club-footed freak. Who looks a little like uh, Barbara Streisand in a diaper? <laughs> um, so, uh, so frankly, I'm, um, I'm I'm looking at that picture right now. And I, anyway, wow, yeah, God, kind of a couple that's years. amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so there's uh, King Tut. Now there are other reconstructions that have been done. Uh, for example, Robespierre, who had uh, sarcoidosis, which um, had some facial ev- evidence on his face of lesions and he was heavily pockmarked <laughs> his portraits um do not betray uh such imperfection however 
Uh, there are reconstructions of certain famous people, such as Dante Alighieri, uh, the author of the Divine Comedy, who in paintings uh, is quite ugly. And the facial reconstructions come very close uh, to what he actually looked like, which was a hook-nosed product of incest as well. With, 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 a, um, with, with a cape. So, uh, yeah. I'm looking at the uh, Robespierre right now. That is, that is scary. It's pretty scary. So, you know, I think that modern... I, 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 think, I think it's on the Edward James Olmo scale. It's, uh, yeah, I <laughs> no, think it's he, an eighth. But not only does he... He's, well, he's severely pockmarked, but um, oh, he looks like... Uh, do you guys remember the Dark Crystal? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he looks like he could be a character from the Dark Crystal. Do you mind me flying out a just a wild theory? What's that? For you? Uh, the prevalence of beards in the past was due to hideous, hideous acne. And well, to bring it back to to bring it back to uh, the yeah. Dark Crystal, that's why Jim Henson had a beard. It was horrible acne scars. Fun fact. I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, now you. Thought it was just a hippie. No, it's to cover up my uh, my horrible acne scars. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me say this though, Madame Tussauds is full of waxwork reconstructions of, of beautiful people, celebrities, and they all are scary. Is maybe it's just the medium. Hmm. I, I, I think I think you might be right because uh you know you, you you kind of look like a canonized saint that the Catholic Church is trying <laughs> to get you to believe did not decay. Yeah. <laughs> which 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 should ha- you know that does happen. You kind of see the putty <laughs> it's, it's true. It kind of reminds me of yeah. That's probably not why, but I kind of wanted to say that. Anyway. Yeah. Well, some celebrities do look like a melted waxwork figure. Uh, well, John Ro- Kerry, for example. Uh, well, I was going to say Roger Moore in uh, A View to a Kill. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Melted candle. Melted candle. But uh, Kerry looks like Lumiere a little bit from uh, Beauty and the Beast, the <laughs> Disney character. <laughs> All right. So let's. Can, uh, can, oh, I got one more thing to say about Webster. Okay. King Tut, we got his tomb. Um, obviously, famously, but uh, with Robespierre, where the hell did they find his skull? Because I was of the opinion that those kind of people were just thrown in a pit. Did someone save his skull plaster, or something like that? A copy of a death mask. Yeah, that's right. Who is giving death masks to guys that are beheaded in public? I'm wondering about this. I don't know. You know I mean, d- d- death masks and life masks were... Uh, you know, Lincoln, they, a lot more, they did it yeah. with Lincoln. At, at, at our college, there was a life yes. mask of, but, but, of but, Lincoln but Link, that was but horrifying. Link, okay, Lincoln was not beheaded as a traitor. <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. No, I'm, but, I'm but, but at some this. point there was a weird there was a weird afternoon where somebody came in and said, "Mr. President, would you like to shove your face into this pile of plaster?" <laughs> I know. I, we know you probably don't have better things to do. And Lincoln eh, was like, "Okay, fair enough." If if it was the Daniel Day Lewis, Lincoln was like, okay. "I'd love right. to put yeah. my face into some plaster." <laughs> A face against this plaster cannot speak. <laughs> yeah, okay. I don't know. So yeah, that's you're, you're you're right. You're right. I was I was I was I was focusing on the death part, but you're absolutely right. Obviously, could have done it during life. <laughs> I, I, I will say I will say this: those reconstructions are pretty amazing uh, of the Neanderthals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but some of them do look like Mickey Rooney. Though. They do. Yeah. All right. So, Blame Lameter, where are you? Let's get you open here. 
Okay, blame meter How responsible is modern forensic science for revealing the hideous countenance of historical figures? Your blameometer score is eight. Oh, that's pretty high. Yeah. That's pretty high. That sounds about right. That sounds about right. The first time ever I saw your face, I thought the sun I, this might be Two. one of the more stream of consciousness, one of the weirder podcasts. Oh, I think this is going to be an interesting editing challenge. I'll just—I I'll, I, I think so. I—I I got my work yeah. cut out for me. I—I would—I would, I would uh, blame "Ravaged by Vikings" yeah. and <laughs> "Arrogant Bastard Ale" for that tonight. Your blameometer score is ten. <laughs> yes. <laughs> See, it does work, guys. It does work. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that about wraps it up for this episode of the Barstool Historian. For those of you who haven't done so already, please go to the iTunes store. Give us a rating that helps us rise in the search results. Also, go to barstoolhistorian.com. That's barstoolhistorian.com without spaces or hyphens. And uh, take a look at some of the things we post there. Okay, that's it. Excelsior. Excelsior. (laughs) In vino veritas.